Dogs living in caves. The northern edge of Nuba Mountains is home to the Kualib people. Their name for themselves is Nairiri, but Nile Arabs branded them Kualib, dogs, in contempt. The Kualib are special because they are one of four Nuba tribes with their own translation of the Bible. As a result, most are Christians. They are also living on the front lines. Most of the Kualib live under constant bombing and shelling from nearby Sudan armed forces. The humanitarian crisis is among the worst of the, all of Nuba. When I recently drove through the country, I found several villages abandoned. All the people had moved to the safety of the mountains. They live all around the base of the mountains and hide in the caves and rocks when the bombings take place. I found the needs extreme. The medical clinic was now closed. Most of the well pumps were broken. There were shortages of everything. But when I spoke to the local leaders, they told, they told me what they really needed was more Bibles. That request humbled me. I met two local pastors who had both been previously imprisoned and tortured. One of the men had permanent scars on his wrist from, from where members of the Muslim Brotherhood had hogtied him from the ceiling and beat him for hours. These people know what it means to suffer, yet they ask me for more Bibles because it's their faith that primarily keeps them going. Heavenly Father, we may one day share and what it means to be persecuted for Christ. In the meantime, it seems that we pray, Lord, protect them as they pray. Lord, make us strong, make us faithful. They ask for Bibles. What a rebuke that is, Father, to my own heart, as I realize that it seems the persecuted church is purified to a degree that we know nothing about. May we, Father, associate and identify with our suffering brethren. May we, Father, uh, support them in prayer and in every other way that we possibly can. And I thank you, Father, that the day is coming soon when the Lord of Lords and King of Kings will come again and to receive us to himself. And I thank you, Father, for that day when Jesus Christ will be finally permanently and forever vindicated for who he is as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Until that day, Father, may we be found faithful. May we be found watching. May we be found ready, serving, actively, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ in every fiber of our being. Father, as we turn to your word now, I pray that you would be our teacher, that you would uh, speak to our hearts where there is particular need. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the ministry of God-permitted thorns. <clears throat> You've perhaps heard the expression, His grace is sufficient. 
Many times that expression is little more than a trite religious cliche. But it emerged from the life of the unrelenting pain of one of God's choicest servants, the Apostle Paul. In his case, we know for certain that it was a God-permitted thorn. Our text is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's a text that, you know, we tend to react a bit. But I ask you not to do that this morning and to hear what God has to say. It is doubtless necessary, though not profitable, for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's on, but the thingy's not in there yet. Transferring this from the other church, taking, setting it up, taking it down, setting it up, I have to be retrained every time. Adequate. We use this expression, I'm up to it. I'm equal to the task. Bring it on. But behind our confessions of competence, there is often an unspoken, not only can I do it, but I can do it better than most. And furthermore, I can do it without any help from anybody. And mixed in there, there's a competitive spirit with a bit of conceit mixed in. But no matter how well motivated we may be, pride, ambition, ego, image can rise up and here's the whole point of this text we need to be protected from ourselves my greatest enemy is myself God recognizes this and that's why this text was given to us there are certain types of people who especially appear adequate 
the highly intellectual whose IQ goes off the chart. There's the greatly gifted. Have you ever noticed how a true musician plays music and the rest of us just kind of play notes? We just don't have the feel that they have. And then there's the deeply spiritual. And, and I'm not, I'm, I'm sincere in this. I'm not referring to the local mystic who sees a demon behind every bush and an angel behind every unusual experience. But I'm talking about those who have paid the price. They've walked closely with God. And now it seems as though they can handle the scriptures with such ease. Their prayer life is so deep and rich. They face the contingencies of life with, with calm and tranquility. We see these people and we just marvel. What we don't see among these are their great gaps of inadequacy. We seem to be blind to this very real side of them. I'm, I'm so reminded of Dr. Hamilton. He had an IQ that was just off the charts. He was a walking encyclopedia of information with absolutely zero common sense. He was observed painting the soffits of his house. He would dip his brush in the paint, climb the ladder, and take a couple slaps. Walk back down the ladder, dip his paint in the bucket, go back up. This went in all afternoon. Uh, you know, isn't there some way you could get the paint a little closer to the project? Well, he was not able to figure that out. But we all have those gaps. So if you are particularly gifted, and there's a few of you around here that really are, how can a truly gifted, greatly gifted person remain dependent upon God? And the answer is the ministry of God-permitted thorns. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul uh, was a unique individual. He was uh, unequaled in, in privilege. Verse 4 says that he was caught up to paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, he was not sure. And this just isn't everyday uh, religious experience. <clears throat> there are those who see a demon behind every bush, an angel behind every unusual happening, and the appearance of Jesus every few nights in their dreams. We tend to shy away from such people. But in the real world, only two men, both apostles, ever had such an experience. And both of these men had that experience for the specific purpose of receiving divine revelation for the purpose of being recorded in Scripture. Paul was never one to sensationalize. He never marketed his stuff. And he only told of this experience 14 years afterwards because he was forced to because of the inroads of the false teachers that had come to Corinth. In verse 1, it says, It is doubtless necessary, though not profitable, for me to, to boast. These false teachers had come to Corinth and were claiming mystical inside information. Both in, in secular and sacred history, we know that these Jewish Gnostics were very prominent 
they had come to Corinth and they had this higher knowledge, they said, this mystical experience that only the initiated, and there were very few of them uh, percentage-wise, and they would, they would teach based upon what they saw, their visions, their revelations, and these mystical experiences. Uh, I just want to throw in here, we have a bit of that in the evangelical Christian scene today. People who say they hear from God and then they speak things that are contrary to the word of God. That's what was going on. And Paul here says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Why? Because this is what they were claiming, that they were having mystical experiences and teaching based upon that. Now this was tough for Paul to do. He says it's necessary, but it's not profitable. And it helps to think of it uh, vertically and horizontally. Horizontally, it's sometimes necessary. You're applying to go to a particular school. Are you qualified to go there? You're applying for a job. Your employer wants to know if you're qualified. It is sometimes necessary. But it's not profitable when we're tooting our own horn on a vertical level. It's not what we would want to do. As Paul presents his resume, so to speak, he, he very, he's very careful to, to qualify it. He questioned his resume, and he qualifies his rapture. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven, that is, paradise. <clears throat> now it's so interesting to me that Paul uses the third person here. He didn't say I was caught up. He said such a one was, was caught up. Essentially he's saying don't make too much out of this. I don't know if I was bodily transported to heaven or just taken there in spirit. God alone knows. In other words, don't make a big deal of it. And it's interesting, too, that the word, the, the Greek word here is harpazo, uh, caught up to the third heaven. It's in the passive voice. It's something that happened to him. He didn't try to work up this experience. He didn't uh, do some mystical thing, take some woohoo drugs to get into an altered state, and he found himself in heaven. None of that nonsense. Through no effort of his own, God sovereignly caught him up. It's the same word that's used in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, The dead in Christ shall be raised up first, then we who are alive and remain shall be harpazoed, caught up. If you've ever looked in your concordance for the word rapture, you won't find it. Rapture is the Latin translation of the Greek harpazo. What you will find in a Hebrew-Greek lexicon or concordance is the word harpazo. That's the word that's used here when Paul was caught up to the third heaven. There's a word for the atmospheric heaven. There's the starry heaven and there's the heaven of heavens where, where God resides. This is where Paul was caught up. 
Now note the qualifications that he puts on this experience. And I heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. There are things about the spiritual dimension that are so beyond our mortal experience that there's no way to relate to them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it says that the Spirit intercedes in our behalf, the Holy Spirit, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And uh, as I thought about that, you know, there are things that we have no awareness of. And the Holy Spirit is able to intercede on our behalf before the Father in ways that we're not even conscious of. And yet, it is necessary. And further, God sealed the apostles' lips about some things he could have revealed, but didn't. It wasn't permitted. I heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. What I want most here for us to see is the humility of the man. Paul, who could have made millions from his experience, carefully protected his integrity and directed their focus to God. He never even would have mentioned it were it not for these Jewish Gnostics with so much at stake. Paul was a man of unequaled privilege, and he was a man of uncommon perspective. <clears throat> In verse 5 he says, Of such a one I will boast. Yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. A man of implicit integrity, not a hint of self-promotion, no taint of pride, no marketing of out-of-body experiences. May his tribe increase. Paul, above all others, knew his personal limitations, weakness, and infirmities. Don't even think about making me out to be the latest hero. Paul was a man of unequal privilege. He was a man of uncommon perspective. And he was a man of undeniable pain. And I think here is the heart of what this text is all about. It's kind of an unexpected twist in the discussion, which points to its whole purpose. In verse 7, and, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. In short, contrary to the popular teaching of health, wealth, and success, sometimes pain is God's permitted reality for our own good. Don't you just love to hear that? 
God sometimes allows pain into our lives, but he does it for our own good. The need for pain. In short, God allowed this unrelenting thorn to afflict Paul so that he would not be exalted as a man and become useless as a servant of God. You know, as a pastor, I am forever grateful that I am not tall, dark, and handsome. Never have to worry about pride in that department. I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and my hair has this uncanny ability to stick straight out in all directions. It looks like a porcupine or maybe a groundhog. And this Thursday morning I came to the preacher team meeting and I had forgot to comb my hair. I comb it on Thursday mornings with a hat. I forgot my hat. And, I, and halfway through our meeting, I, something came up and I said, oh, I forgot to deal with my hair. And never at a loss for words, Justin said, yeah, your, your hair is doing some unusual things this morning. <laughs> Very kind, Justin, thank you. This God-permitted thorn was a thorn in the flesh given as a messenger of Satan to buffet. I'm always fascinated as I read the scripture how God uses Satan many times as an instrument for his own glory. Here he turns God's, Satan's meddling, inflicting a pain in the Apostle Paul, and God says, okay, Go right ahead, Satan. That's what I want for my servant Paul. A thorn in the flesh. So just uh, what was Paul's thorn? We're not told. Any guess is just that. A guess based upon speculation or inference. And I think the best speculation that I've heard is based upon the passages in Galatians 4, at the end of the book where he says, you see how with such large letters I write. Paul almost always used an, an, uh, a secretary, an amanuensis, I think it's called. Somebody else wrote as he dictated. But here he himself wrote, but his letters were big. And in Galatians chapter 6, uh, it says that were it possible, you would have cut out your own eyes and given them to me, if you could. The implication is that he had a, an, an eye uh, disorder. And in Asia Minor, where he spent much of his time in his missionary journeys, there was a not too uncommon eye disease that was festering and running and very difficult to look at. That perhaps was what his thorn in the flesh was. But the nature of this thorn, as described in this text, was a thorn in the flesh. It had to do with some physical pain in his body. And it's in the present tense, denoting that this was an ongoing thing that he took to his grave. What we must not miss is why. And in verse 7, we're told twice. Lest I should be exalted above measure. And at the end of the verse, lest I be exalted above measure. 
God gave Paul a thorn sandwich. Lest I be exalted above measure. Lest I be exalted above measure. You think our Lord isn't grieved when we exalt ourselves? And we're so subtle in the way we do it through name dropping and making a conversation go to a place where it'll focus on my accomplishments. So concerned was our Heavenly Father with his servant Paul that he made sure that here is one of my servants of whom conceit will not destroy. Here is one who will not bow to pride. Paul, I love you too much. I'm going to protect you from yourself. When we read the 12th chapter of Hebrews, we discover that God disciplines those who are his own. It's corrective discipline. When we sin and we do not, uh, are not chastened by the Lord, there's no sense of conscience or whatever. Uh, that's a good indication that you don't know the Lord. What you, your problem is that you've never been born again. The Lord disciplines those who are his own. And if you do not receive chastening, you're illegitimate. That's what the text says. That's corrective discipline. Here, it was preventative correction, preventative discipline. Paul didn't want, God didn't want Paul to have to face corrective discipline. And you know, there is a, such a thing as promotive discipline. In the book of Proverbs, it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. The word train up there, the Hebrew word, is from a cognate Arabic word, which means to stimulate, to promote. And an Arab women to this day, when the, with a newborn child, dip their finger in honey and put it to the lips of the newborn child to stimulate sucking, to promote what they want the child to do. That, too, is a part of disciplining. Parents, do you correct? Do you promote? Do you prevent in your training and discipline of a child? Paul was concerned that promoting and and, uh, preventative disciplining would not be a part of a father's discipline. Do not discipline a child and discourage him and promote bitterness. If all there is is correction, parents, corrective discipline, the child's going to lose heart and become bitter. God prevents, God promotes, God corrects and does many other things in his discipline of us as he conforms us into the image of Christ. The credibility of the Bible, I believe, is seen in its absolute transparency. Its heroes aren't superhuman. They're real. Their humanness is described uh, clearly. Their weaknesses, their sinfulness. Paul's initial response to this thorn. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for this thorn. Bring it on. Bring some more. Right? Is that? No. The text says his initial response was the same as ours. 
verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And three times the Lord said no. And what I get from this, among other things, is that there is a time to pray and there's a time not to pray. I do not have to pray about committing adultery. That's something I've never had to pray about. I already know God's answer. Don't. Why would I want to pray about that? There's a time to pray for grace, to endure rather than relief from the thorn. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And three times the Lord said, No, my grace is sufficient. When Paul prayed, so did God answer? I think in your notes it says that no is an answer as much as yes or not yet or, or wait. One of the reasons I read uh, the thing from uh, Sudan this morning in our introduction of the persecuted church, we pray, Lord, protect them. They pray, Lord, keep us faithful. Lord, send us Bibles. That's a rebuke to me. As a pain-avoiding culture, our prime objective is to live with no pain. And in so doing, we mask and limit what God would do in our lives, especially as it relates to emotional pain. Our first response is to medicate. This week, uh, my back has just been killing me. On Monday... I was really feeling good. I had a good night's sleep. And we went over to get the grandkids. And uh, little Jeremy, he's three and a half years old, weighs 30 pounds, got down on the lower step in front of the door. And I come charging around the corner and I reached sideways. And I'm no longer 20. And my back went. <laughs> Yesterday, I had to crawl to the bathroom. Thanks to a handful of Advil and aspirin and cold packs, uh, I'm doing actually pretty good this morning. But all week, I've been hurting. You know where my thoughts have been? I've been thinking all week, especially, about Ricky Jackson, who's been experiencing a, a debilitating pain for two and a half years. My pain's going away. It's just temporary. It's not a thorn in the flesh. It's just my stupidity. I hurt myself. A thorn in the flesh doesn't leave. I think of Kathy, Kathleen, who goes to the Kenai Church. She's approaching 60 years of age and has never known an adult day outside of a wheelchair. The sweetest person in the church. And one day she said, God gave me this to bear. And I do so gladly to his glory. What an attitude. I'm sorry, but I, I don't know that I would be able to have an attitude like that. But God has used that thorn in her life in an incredible way. 
I think here's the bottom line. His unequaled privilege, uncommon perspective, undeniable pain, he was a man of unsurpassed power. Verse 9, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in weakness, therefore, most assuredly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, and distresses, when those things are because or for Christ's sake. Here is a man who could sing in prison after being lashed. Here is a man who could say with absolute integrity, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because of the ministry of God-permitted thorns, Paul, as few people knew, What it meant, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Not only did God say no to Paul, he said, Paul, cling to my grace. It is sufficient. It is the link between you and ministry. Do you know the power of God resting upon you? The power of God rests upon us when we are living a life of integrity. When there is a life of obedience. When there is a life where there is not hidden sin. These are the things that sap us of spiritual strength. When we live in integrity and without unconfessed sin in our lives. There is a sense of moral authority that God places within us that we can live our life and speak without living inside in the shadows. You men in this congregation who are enmeshed in pornography know what I'm talking about. There's no transparency. You're living in the shadows. There's no moral authority. I challenge you to face that issue if that is an issue with you. It's destroying your spiritual vitality. Look at how Paul puts it. My power is perfected in weakness. That word there, power, is the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. It's complete. That's the word that's used here. All things work together for good, the good of conforming us to the image of Christ. And it's in that that we are made complete in him, in this life. What is it about weakness that shows the strength? I asked that question at staff meeting. It, the weakness in and of itself does not make us strong. It's what it does to us. It makes us reliant upon the Lord. The, super, the Christian life is supernatural. It cannot be lived in the power of the flesh. It has to be lived in communion and obedience with and to the Lord. Paul, this is the... This thorn is your cross. Bear it like I did. 
Stop praying for healing and start and stop asking for relief. I will not remove this thorn. Boy, that's unpopular to hear. To think that God would do this to one of his servants. Bring pain into his life. I see it that God loved him so much that he brought that pain into his life. So what is our hope? Grace, God's enabling power. Paul's response, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness. This was Paul's testimony. Let me tell you about my weaknesses. Let me tell you about my inadequacies, my pain, those times I just could not go another day. Let me tell you about the sackcloth behind the public persona. You just won't read testimonies like that in People magazine. That doesn't get the print because we want our stars to look super adequate. We like, we like our stories to come from heaven where somebody talked with the living God. We don't want to hear about wheelchairs and thorns. Well, God does. Look at the list in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sakes. Well, isn't it wonderful? God has preserved this account for us of what happened to the Apostle Paul so we can just all pray and go home. No, not quite. Thorns aren't a first century phenomenon only. God is still in the thorn business as he produces his character in his precious children. And there are many here today, myself included, who need to hear what God is saying. There are times when thorns are necessary to pierce our adequacy. Some of you may be flirting with that dangerous emotional animal, pride. You need to know that it can destroy you. There is nothing more sad than to see a Christian, a highly qualified Christian, living in the power of the flesh. I believe that's why God permits thorns. I don't believe I've ever known a man or woman greatly used of God who did not have at least one, sometimes many thorns, something that kept them trusting, dependent, reliant. So I want to suggest with you in closing, when thorns pierce your adequacy, look within. As James said in the first chapter, my brethren, count it a a joyful thing when trials come your way because they produce character, things like patience. It brings completion. You may be complete and entire, lacking nothing. It is the trials, it is the thorns that God uses to bring maturity into our lives. And then look beyond. Instead of focusing on the pain, focus on the fragrance. I know that's hard to give, to to do, but it gives hope. When you look within, we see God's purpose for thorns. It, It brings joy. When you look beyond the pain to the glory, it gives you hope. There comes a day 
there is coming a day when there will be no more thorns, no more sickness, no more trials, no more sorrow, no more tears, and no more death. As Paul said in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present hour are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. I want to close this, this morning by reading from you from Joni Erickson Tata's book, Choices and Changes. Included in this story, which she wrote while visiting Auschwitz, the German uh, death camp. I recount Corey Ten Boon, her recent funeral at a small suburban cemetery a few miles south of L.A. It was the flowers that impressed me that day, no hothouse blooms stuck in styrofoam and cut out shapes of hearts, no white satin banners with gold-sprinkled messages of sympathy. Instead, there were vases, tins of vases, of freshly cut tulips, yellow and red. The bouquets of fresh-cut flowers somehow someone had clipped from Corey's backyard. The casket was closed, the music was Bach, the eulogies were glowing but understated. The only extravagance was the profusion of flowers, and the little stone chapel was filled with a sweet fragrance. Now, today, I sit in silence in this place, memories of Corey stirring my thoughts. The only things that move are the wind and the daisies. It is at once striking and poignant, for Corey, who came out of the pit of hell, would be the first to say that the sufferings of that place confronted her with the realities of the love or hate in her own heart. The confinement of her lonely cell, that was her thorn, by the way, attacked her own vanity and pride. The crushing needs of her fellow prisoners constantly exposed her own need to give and to share. She could not blame. She could only forgive. I tell Ken, my husband, of the first time I met that remarkable woman some years ago at a convention where our new books were being presented. Corey approached from down the long, red, carpeted hallway of the hotel. People were all about. Many sought her attention, but she strode directly toward me, hiking her cane on her elbow, reaching for my hand with those strong hands that only survivors have, and announced in her thick Dutch accent, the Van Day, my friend, we will be dancing together in heaven because of the Lord Jesus. Doesn't that sound like Corey? And today I can laugh and rejoice because Corey is dancing now. And one day soon, once changed, we shall join her. Now I want you to get this. Take away the prison, and Corey has no message. Take away the paralysis, and Johnny Erickson has no ministry. It's the thorn that gives beauty to their message and their ministry. I want to close with this tapestry, author unknown. My life is but a weaving, 
between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget that he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shutters cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reasons why. Why the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern that he has planned. Father, it is difficult for us to come to terms with a passage like this. Nobody likes pain. We are all a pain-avoiding people. And that is, to a degree, as it should be. When we're sick, we should seek to get well. But Father, we tend to become so focused on the thorn and the pain that we fail to realize there may be more to it than what we see on the surface. And Father, I thank you so very much that as a faithful, loving Father, you are not only able, but you are willing to dispense thorns as they are needed to save us from ourselves, that we might be faithful servants Lord, I pray that our heart attitude would be one of willing reliance upon the one of all grace who enables us to have purpose and meaning and significance. Something more than just another day and another dollar, but a life, Father, that is energized and empowered by the Spirit of God. Bottom line, Father, I pray that our hearts would be compliant to you, whatever it is that you choose to bring into our lives. For our good and your glory, for I pray in the name of Jesus, amen.